Welcome everybody back to Sheep Stuff You Should Know. This is Ryan Mahoney coming to you from Rio Vista. Foggy, overcast, misty, uh, kind of a teasing rain, if you will. I, I wish I had about four inches, but I'm getting about a tenth. But it feels nice. So I'm coming here from Rio Vista, Solano County, California. Today I'm joined by my good friend up in Auburn, Mr. Dan Macon. What's going on? We got a little rain up here too, but but kind of like there. It's just kind of wet and, and drippy, not really coming down. Yeah, is the feed growing at all up there? Have you had decent growing weather? You know, we're starting to finally see some grass. It's it's uh I'm at least comfortable we're gonna make it through lambing and in into the springtime when we go back on irrigated. So I'm I'm much happier right. than I was a month ago. Yeah, no, me too. I, you know, we're still, we're still struggling. We're still feeding a lot of hay, but, um, I was able to, we had a meeting last week, or I guess early this week with my guys about, we're going to start speeding up our rotation now and getting things rotated through. Whereas before it was just leave them in a field and feed them as much yeah. hay as you can. And now we're going to start rotating. And so it's all in, and we lost a, we lost cow to tetany here. I guess yesterday or day before. And so that's always the sign that the grass is going <laughs> crazy now. So that's uh that's not a good thing, but it yeah, happens. It does. So. it does. I it's uh we're finally actually starting to see some creeks run and and stock ponds filling up and so we're not definitely not out of the woods yet, but better than we looked good. thirty days ago. Well, got any land yeah. on the ground? <laughs> you no, know, I bragged I knew when they were gonna start and uh no not yet not no. yet you need your timer your timer, run timer out? runs out tomorrow so we'll see i'm gonna oh, go oh man well i asked you i sent you the message when i saw that i said what are you gonna do if i'm coming to steal lambs from <laughs> you so I, I can put them on i jinxed you gosh <laughs> darn it I, I shouldn't have said i'm gonna that. come steal That's some from fault. you so i can at least put them on instagram make people think we're lambing god you know i think i may have said this before on the show but man i i um when it's lambing and you see those ewes getting bagged up and they're just huge and the milk's popping and i think man we're gonna have thousands of lambs you know come tomorrow and then tomorrow comes and i have no lambs and i think to myself gosh are they just bloated did i breed did i forget to put the rams out did i put them in all the bunches what kind of rams did i i hope they were all right did i get the and man it is a it is stressful for me until we finally get oh, the first I know. it's one. like it's like playing a sport you know that first hit in football or or the first pitch in baseball yeah. you kind of then everything's okay but until that it, happens <laughs> yeah yeah it, it would take me i'd get hit and then you get that first contact and then all of a sudden you just lock in and you wouldn't even know how you did everything yep. you did but all the butterflies are yeah, gone the anticipation just man it kills me <laughs> i i went out yesterday afternoon you know thinking i'd i'd have lambs and three of the the biggest whitest ewes were just standing there chewing their cud looking at me like what we're not ready go away yeah go away i'm yeah. happy yeah. This is nice. <laughs> Things gonna start banging on my udder once I have it on the ground. I, give me yeah. a couple more days. Exactly. Exactly. So I, uh, with everything else going on, tried and tried and tried to come up with a great topic, and utterly failed. And so, unbeknownst to you, I put a call out to our many, many Instagram fans. 
that this was their chance to stump Ryan and Dan. So this is like the sheep herder grab bag of questions for us today. Dang. And I, I turned off my Instagram (laughs) here. I had no idea you're doing any of this stuff. That's my, my Lenten desert off of the social media. That that was wily move, man. Well, I may have to do it after this week too. (laughs) That's pretty good. That's good. So did you get three questions? <laughs> I, you know what? I got, I got, yeah. I got actually a lot of, a lot of interesting questions and feedback. So it's kind of like the, the sheep herder cool. hacks, things that you've figured out how to deal with, um, you know, and problem solving and that kind of thing. So we'll see how this goes. We'll just, we'll. All we'll right. See. Let me get some coffee and get ready. <laughs> let's, let's go. I'm ready to roll. Let's see what, see what All can right. happen. So I, I suspect I know the answer to this one. And, and I think you will have no problem. I'll, I'll give you a, a softball pitch for the first one. So you got All a right. field that right, you want to put sheep in, right? You got no stock water. What the heck do you do? How do you get, how do you figure out how much water you need? How do you get water to them? What, tell me how your setup works in that regard. Uh, so we have a thousand gallon nurse tanks, which is a trailer with a tank okay. on it. Uh, any tank any size works it basically you want water storage bring it in we use um, then usually there'll be an outlet on the bottom and we'll connect garden hoses to it you can use y's or splitters i got all sorts of different kinds i got some that just do the simple y i got ones that split to four hoses just depends on what you have and then they run to um, kind of plastic they're aluminum case plastic floats that mm-hmm. just fit onto a side of a aluminum water trough that's easy to pick up and move around. And you, excuse me, you throw it in a field and um, we always try to locate the water strategically because you're going to have a lot of impact on the ground. So they're going to be walking to it. So there'll be trails headed to it. If we're on alfalfa, we always try to put our water in the drain. Some fields don't allow okay. for it because this is a stationary tank that doesn't move. It moves with the sheep. And so then we have to have another tank that has a pump on it that we drive and fill. Oh, okay. So we need to make sure we have turnaround radius and things like that, that we're not damaging any, any problems or anything like that. Um, as far as any like little tricks or hacks on that, um, if you do have to go over a ditch, uh, we always have like a couple of two by sixes or something, and we'll throw them all across the ditch and wire the hose to it. So the hose doesn't bend. Um, cause you can get kinks and things like that. The other thing we do is, um, we'll take T posts and put them on. We use three. So we'll take, we'll have the float on the water trough and then we'll have one T post on both sides of that water trough, mm-hmm. a little one, one by something piece of scrap wood, that will screw the the holders for the float. So you can screw those right to the metal, but we actually put a piece of board in there because you can actually get better tension because you tighten the the little oh, yeah. bolt into the wood the a little bit and it holds screws, it yeah. better. Yeah. And then you um and then we take a piece of bailing wire and we'll wire those three posts kind of together. And then we'll run our hose um up the side of a post across where the wire is and then it goes straight down into the float so you, if you just me. go straight to the float it'll fall over and kink yeah as it gets old if you go straight in you don't have that problem so that's kind of a little little tiny hack oh, that's there a, um, yeah 
How how much drops? Yeah, we space? always and then. Go ahead. Go ahead. How much? Oh, I don't know. It's trough spacing. It it just depends on the bunch size. I mean, you throw them out there and see how they do. If it's winter time and there's moisture in the feed, you don't really need hardly any. So maybe yeah. one or two troughs for a good sized bunch of five six hundred sheep. If you're in the dry fall and a year like this, we'll probably we have four troughs per bunch a lot of times. Okay. It just it really depends. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And it depends on your size of like you don't need a thousand gallon tank if you got a, a hundred use. You can use a smaller tank. It just and you can get them. You just want something that holds water that stays there, and something that you holds water that you can put it into. Yeah, there right. Is really all right. You need. Right. So, Gravity yeah. can be our friend. Yeah. The other thing on a new pasture too, you don't have water, and I know the question was water centric. Um, always look at the field and um, think of yep. predation, and limit the access. So if there's drain pipes, we throw some little fiberglass posts in front of the drain pipes. If there's uh, swales, we make sure that the fences follow that. So we're creating a good border and a buffer yeah. around. Um, we don't want to get real lazy and just kind of, you know, swoop it up and then the sheep can get out and the predators can get in. So knowing your field, knowing what you're getting into is, is important. Scouting it out yep. and making a plan. And then, yeah, that's when we set up new fence, you know, if we set up new fence three or four days before we go into a new pasture, we always walk the fence first just to make sure something hadn't gone through it or fallen over it or all of that too. I will, I will relate. You talk about culverts and drains. We had a, a goat grazing project in Rockland about 10 years ago. And there was a culvert that one of my guys didn't know was in this particular field. And we had about um, 20 goats get into the culvert and not figure out how they could get back out. And uh, that creates some interesting. That's one thing to remember with livestock Yeah, is that sheep cannot walk backwards. <laughs> yep. That's, and yep. so it's, and, and we've had it on our ranch. We have irrigation ditches on our irrigated pastures and we've had it where the sheep will walk into the irrigation pipe and it can't get out. And so we have to climb in and basically pull it yeah. out of the pipe and then you know block it off make sure they can't get in but it's really important to pay attention to those little things especially when you're going yeah. into a new field because if a sheep gets into a pipe and you go and you gather the sheep you're just going to have a missing sheep and not yep. know where it's at so you really got to scout that pasture see you know look for hazards and and uh yeah be a good shepherd and a good land steward that's the other part of it too like especially when you're going on lease yep. property or, or doing a service for somebody they have a goal in mind. And so make sure your plan uh, works with yep. their goal. You gotta, you gotta work with them because that way you get it back the following years. Well, and I will, I think at some point soon, as we talked about earlier, talk about targeted grazing and contract grazing, but, but that is even more, I think, critical when you're grazing in the eye of the public um, to really give some careful thought to all of those things too. Yeah. All right. Well, you passed question number one. All right. All right. I'll put a, I'll put a B plus. <laughs> oh, I'd give you an A. I'd give you an A. I think that was good. Oh, yes. All right. All so right. I, we may have covered this one already, but I think it's a good one to, to kind of reiterate. And it kind of grows out of, out of the processing value added talk we had last week. But how do you know when a lamb is finished? What do you, how do you judge who gets on the truck and who has to stay a while? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so 
the easy way to do it if you have your hands and nothing else is you put your you put your um, right above the last three ribs basically you follow those last three ribs up and you put your thumb on the spine and you feel the fat cover over the spine with your thumb and then you use your other fingers that are on the side of the sheep and you feel the fat cover on mm -hmm. those ribs and if it's very pronounced then it's too lean and if you can't feel the bumps so to say you know, you'll, you'll always be able to feel the bones but if it's you can feel if it's a nice finish on it then it's ready and if it's you know if you can feel it then it's uh it's not uh, it's always impressed me how different genetics within sheep display themselves differently so depending on the type of wool the the the, the, the what you call it strong yeah. wool type yeah. breeds especially um some of your smaller meat breeds and things like cheviots and those they they um they 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 finish um they, everything finishes the same it's a lamb carcass but they display their finish differently so if you go and you just try to look at them and when you have like fine wools, you can look and see how that wool breaks and it kind of breaks a certain way when they're a little leaner. But on some of those coarser wooled ones, the wool doesn't break the same. So if you're dealing with a lot of different types of sheep and you're looking at them, you, you, you really need to get your hands on some of them to, to tell the finish. So like just a side note story. So we would buy some lambs out of the Willamette Valley every year. Um, not last year because the year was crazy uh, market wise. But, um, anyway, normally we will buy them out of there and I'll actually go through every lamb we buy out of there after 60 days on our pasture, I go through by hand and I, and I sort them all by hand. So I actually sort the fats by hand, just like the method I talked about. You feel the ribs, you feel the back and I'll send those lambs right off the grass and they'll be finished at 114 okay. pounds. And then I'll take the feeders, put them on feed. So they finish uh, on the out of the feedlot and they'll go to town at 145 to 50 pounds and it's simply by sorting the genetics and sorting the genetic disposition to finish off of grass better than some of the other genetics and there's there's a place and, for those different size carcasses in the market in there yeah and like the, those bigger ones that we're putting on feed they would finish on feed in the spring but we're having hot weather in August when we're doing this and they won't finish on the grass because the grass doesn't have the same umph that it does in the spring. Right. Whereas these right. other genetics are able to, you know, they're, they're able to um, turn that into muscle and, and finish and fat, yeah. much better it on that poor energy feed than, the, and I don't know if that's the right term, but uh, then in the springtime where basically anything can get fat in the spring. That's yeah. Like, right. That's like expecting to lose weight at Christmas. It just doesn't happen. <laughs> so when you're when you're shipping out of the feedlot, do you do you handle a certain percentage of the lambs that you're looking so at? I will go. I, I I'm contra a lot of people on this one. Um, so when we go and we feed lambs, we want to feed them on a time schedule because we mm. want to be a finishing yard, and so we send them uh, basically after a time frame. Okay. Um, there is occasions where we will sort fats. We tend to do that visually yeah. um, because by the time they get there, they're, they're fairly uniform. Um, but yeah. And, and so our, the way our ration is built, we get pretty high percentage yield grade twos and some threes right at 60 to okay. 80 days. 
And so we're able to just start the timer once yeah. they go in. And we don't really, we don't want to be a, we don't want to be a grow yard. We want to be a finishing feedlot. And so that's really how so we. Tell me what the difference is. Tell me the difference him. between a grow yard and a finishing yard. Well, a grow yard is looking to just grow um, size so it's frame of the animal kind of fr- grow it out so you're yeah you're growing frame along with muscle and you don't want to get them too fat too quick you want to yeah. grow them out so you don't want as high a energy okay. ration whereas in a finishing yard you want to get them in and finish them and get them to town and so that that's always kind of been our philosophy we want to own them as few days as possible um, because every day on corn is pretty high it gets back to kind of what that kurt said in the one episode like when you're supplementing you're losing a lot of times because the cost right. of the supplements sometimes are more expensive than that. And, you know, our cost of gains are lower than the fat price. So it doesn't work in that sense, but it does work in the sense that you are supplementing this animal now rather than feeding it and growing it on pasture. So you, there's a real specific purpose to what we're doing. And I mean, the ruminant is, is a, it, it's a pasture based animal. I mean, the cattle, the cattle system, everybody talks about the cattle feedlots, but the cattle feedlots are basically set up exactly the yeah. same. I mean, they're, they're set up to finish cattle. Yeah. And before they get to those feedlots is an all grass based system. And the sheep industry is the same Yeah. where it's an all grass based system and the feedlots finish. Yeah. And that doesn't, now I got to backtrack because we do have a lot of Midwestern growers that are really pretty ingenious in some of these accelerated lambing systems and the weather back there and the feed resources demand more of a, um, more of a corn diet and some are just straight corn and, and, um, and that's a, that's a little different system. But I think if you get into the rumen, it's a little bit different balance in that rumen, um, in that system. And not that it doesn't, it's, I'm not saying one's better than the other. Just we're on the West Coast. We have lots of grass. <laughs> we need to finish lambs. We sh- we all of our corn we have to rail out yeah. from Iowa, and so we're bringing feedstuffs in to finish lambs. Whereas, like in that Midwest system, their their grass is corn. They're growing right. corn everywhere, and so it's right there. I think that's the 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 really critical point in all of this is that that every system is kind of based on the resources at hand, and 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 that's why flexibility is so important. It seems like. Yeah. And I think it's so, I think it's so important to emphasize, like, especially after what I just said, that if the animal is healthy, it's being taken care of. And so you have these all corn based systems that's producing beautiful product in lamb. You can't get a beautiful product if your animal's not healthy and not being well taken care of. And it's the same in the grass-based systems. And so it's about looking at the resources around where you're at and making that make the best, healthiest right. animal you can. Right. And in those mid, a lot of those Midwest systems, it's feeding them corn because that's what they have. You go on the West Coast, it's going to be different. You go into Hawaii, okay. it's different. You go to Canada, it's different. You go to Mexico, it's different. <laughs> you go into the South, it's different. It's you can't you can't impose one idea of how a sheep should be raised on all well, producers. Well, and it's even different in what we're probably a hundred miles apart, and and yeah, you fall different. lamb and and we spring lamb, and and yeah. I mean just that fundamental difference in what we can grow and what the rainfall is and and all of that is is there's no right or wrong. It's it's fitting it to your own environment, isn't it? Yeah. 
And, and like I said, if the animals are healthy, you're doing yep. that right. Yeah. So, you know, there's, yeah. Yep. All right. So you're two for two, man. Easy so far. <laughs> All right. So now we're going to throw our, our mutual friend, Jill Hackett under the bus. So somebody <laughs> yeah. that works with Jill or at least reads Jill's. She has, she has just, I, I shouldn't, um, I, I try to not say opinions about people, but she has some of the prettiest oh. wool for strong wool. Just does an absolutely phenomenal job with the Perrindale wool she's got up there. It's really beautiful stuff. The length and strength on that and the natural, um, I mean, it's a coarse wool, so it's not next to skin wear, but it is just a beautiful, strong, wavy fiber. I really like that. that and she, she's got such pretty country up there to run in too, and that's... I'm, I'm always envious yeah. when I see her pictures. <laughs> so, yeah. but she did confuse one of her friends. So she was talking about foot rot and she started talking about trimming claws on sheep. And so we have a question, what the heck is a claw? Aren't sheep cloven animals? What, what did Jill mean by that? Man. So uh, a full disclosure, my, uh, my, my education background is religious <laughs> studies. So I know, I know, um, a lot about sheep herding from what I've read in the Bible and, um, and, uh, but no, so I know you can eat cloven hooved as animals. That's right. Um, anyway, but no, I, I would say claw is that when you get foot rot, it causes those hooves to grow a lot of times and some of that can grow without foot rot and it's just the disposition of the hoof to be misshapen um but one way or another those hooves it's like a fingernail where it's constantly growing and sometimes it grows weird and you'll get where these sheep grow these long protruding it basically kind of spins out of the front of the foot would be a good way to say it where it grows down and spins out in front and so it basically looks like a little claw. So when you're saying I'm cutting the claws on the hooves, you're basically cutting these excess pieces of, of hoof or overgrown hoof and getting it back to that sound structural design that the hoof needs to be to really have a good life. And the foot health is really highly correlated to longevity in cloven hooves animals. We call those kind of feet elf toes. They look like elf slippers, you know. So I will say, yeah. we call them we call them poles. <laughs> well, we do too. We I I had uh, in my my never ending attempts to get other people to do my work for me. I invited Doctor Bush to come up when we trim feet in January, and uh, actually, there's some really interesting research coming out of Ireland now that says. The only reason we should trim is to restore proper conformation. I think it's really so interesting. I, uh, I, so this is a Jeff Clark and, and, and me kind of creation here a few years back. But um, <laughs> we, we used to trim the old school way, right? You get foot rot, yep. you trim it out, yep. everything out. We stopped that about three years ago when we really focused on our feet and, and started the EIDs and all that stuff. And what we did was we would trim to hoof soundness and yep. no more. And we would cure the infection yep. with an antibiotic. Yep. And what, what kind of spurred that is we, we had um, given everything an antibiotic and then we started trimming. And when I was trimming these hooves, I was blown away because 
the hooves were misshapen and you could see where the infection was, but it was dry as a yeah. bone inside. And I just, I was thinking to myself, there is no reason for us to cut out this dry old infection. We need to just leave that hoof in shape because when we cut it way back, that sheep would take, you know, two weeks yeah. to recover from the lameness from, from getting the, the, the bad cloven, you know, the bad infection out. And we were able to take that and just have them go straight out to pasture because we were just trimming them rather than cutting out a, a hot yeah. infection. Now, if there is a hot infection, we will maybe cut a little deeper on some of them just so that way the copper can get in. But as a rule now, we trim to soundness, not trim to, we've been doing that for like three years. That, we started doing that last year and, and really kind of furthered that approach this year. And um, I really I like it. It's partly because trimming It's one of the but, worst, <laughs> worst yeah. things to do at all. But yeah. Yeah. All right. So we got three for three. Yeah. Only 30 minutes in. No. So I've, I've got a couple more, a couple more here that, um, this one, this one, I know you'll know something about, um, but I, am going to throw somebody else under the bus here too, because he claims that he's a cattle producer, uh, but he has a sheep question for us. So I'm suspecting that he may now be in the sheep business as well. But he wants to know, he told me he was asking for a friend, but I know this is a lie. What do you do when you got a ewe that just delivered twins and has mastitis? What do you do to her? Well, when you have a ewe that has mastitis, you medicate it with antibiotic immediately. Now, do you injectable or and do you use the, the inter? I use injectable. Okay. Yeah, uh, I just use an injectable antibiotic. Um, talk to your yep. vet about which one I, uh, and then what we'll do if she has twins, we'll make one lamb, okay. a bummer or a orphan lamb. So we'll put one on the bottle and we'll leave one on the U, but we'll watch it very closely. Uh, because if the mastitis clears up, she'll be able to raise it. If it doesn't clear up, then we need to pull and make both of them, uh, bummers. And then we also make her a coal for okay. the following year okay. automatically. The other thing we did differently this year is any of those ewes that we had go through our lambing barn, I separated them off and they never mixed with the big bunch. So of you sheep. didn't get any costs. So those infections Infection. stayed isolated and we didn't spread it. And um, we had one of the, I think we culled at like, um, I think we're at so far, we're, we're only culling like, I don't know, right at 10% of the sheep, which is a good 10% down yeah. where we normally are. So usually we're about 15 to 20 and we're at 10 so far. This now year. you'll go through still at, at weaning or as you, as you have been weaning, you'll check bags as well. Yep. Bag yeah. and mouth and okay. do all that. Okay. Yeah. Now, will you bag them again before you breed? Okay. No, I know you talked about that before. No, we'll bag them. Okay. Once. Okay. Yeah. All right. I don't like to work them more than we have to. How many times a year do you have to put hands on each you? Uh, weaning at, at bagging and mouthing is everything gets it. And then um, preg scan, everything gets it, gets touched. And then at shearing, everything okay. gets touched. So I would say three minutes. And then when do you give your pre-lambing vaccinations? Or uh, we'll give them before lambing month before okay. lambing. so they'll come in an extra time for okay. some of that okay but so three or four times a year typically yeah i'd say three okay. minimum okay yeah three minimum but 
often more than that. I mean, because there'll be other reasons you bring them in. You'll sort buttons, yeah. but everything will get touched, I'd say, three okay. times a year. Okay. So I'm trying to think for us, it would be, be weaning. It would be pre-breeding because we'll go through and body condition score pre-breeding. Mm-hmm. I guess you throw marking in there too. That would be four. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And our marking, we're not handling the use. We're just handling the hand on the lambs. Yeah, we'll deworm all our use okay. when we mark. At the okay. Same time. Yeah, that's a big part of labor, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, yep. All right. So more of a philosophical question now. Oh, I all like right. this. So you got lamb. We're talking meat here. Got lamb. Mm-hmm. We got hogget. We got mutton. Is there a place for all three products in the U.S. market? Is there only one customer in the U.S. market? <laughs> no. Yeah, I, I think so. America is the melting pot of the world. And while we do have our trends, um, I think there's a market. What do you like best out of those three uh, classifications? Okay. Lamb. Okay. Yeah, I like a rack of lamb or a shank or ground lamb. For me, a mutton can be strong. Um, but I do know that my preconceived ideas have been slightly misproven by Colorado State's yep. work on lamb flavor. And it has more to do with intermuscular marbling than it does necessarily age. Um, that being said, most of the mutton is pretty lean, which probably is probably why it's mutton. typically yeah. stronger. Yeah. yeah, right. So... Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, yeah, there's, there's so many ways to prepare food with the internet. You can have a recipe yep. for everything. So if you do have strong lamb, then, uh, find a real spicy juiced up, uh, recipe and make it, and it'll probably be great. And, and there's definitely demands for so much of it. And you really see it in the marketplace with the, the growth and, um, you know, we will call it the non-traditional markets or ethnic markets, they'll call them, but there's such a huge growth in those types of industries. And you see that in the different styles of restaurants right. popping up over everywhere. And, and so, and of course I have a very West coast look view of things. So, you know, I can drive them. If I drive within an hour of my house, I can literally eat every single type of cultural food right. in the world. Right. If, I, if right. I wanted to, it's just, it's that, that's just kind of what we have here in California, but that's pretty reflective of the U S though, too. It's not, as concentrated as it is in California, but um, there's definitely customers for everything. I do think that it's incredibly important to have some international trade in your market. I, I think it's, it, you can't expect to sell hundred percent. If you're going to be a real healthy industry, you shouldn't sell hundred percent within the mm-hmm. state boundaries. Um, and so I, I, you know, there's some really cool um, export opportunities into the Caribbean mm-hmm. Um, there's some really, you know, Mexico has been a traditional strong trading partner with us. Um, and, and that's a fantastic market. They eat a different product. Um, a lot of the mutton yeah. goes that way. Um, barbacoa traditionally is made with a uh, button and I love barbacoa. Too. I'll have it any day of the too. week. Um, I'd love to get a deal with Scotland where we can start selling them sheep stomachs for haggis, <laughs> but I guess that market is pretty, pretty taken by the by well, our UK well friends. Well supplied domestically, I think. 
Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. Although I, I will say I did celebrate my, my brother's has a girlfriend who's Scottish. And so we celebrated Burns night with the haggis. Uh, it was incredible. Although it was a, it was a U.S. haggis with no. I have mom. never had haggis. I need to I need to remedy that. Yeah, I'm a little bummed though because so I I had this haggis. I was all excited and it tasted. I really liked it. I mean, it was kind of like just a real hearty oatmeal mixed with uh, meatloaf, kind of blended together. It was really good. And I had another Scottish buddy of mine. And I was like, Hey, I had haggis last night. It was great. And he's like, Oh, what did you think of the gravy? And I was gravy? like. It was supposed to be gravy. <laughs> He's like, "Oh man, you got you got the short end of the straw there, man." So now I got next year. I got to make sure I get the whiskey gravy. And I looked up a recipe online, and man, I really did get missed. Oh out. man, uh, yeah. No, I... But anyway, back to the export thing. I think it is really important. Um, Canada is another uh, great market that we used to trade a lot into there. Um, when the M Cool stuff happened, we lost that market and. Um, they're, they're a really good market for us. And we sold a lot of lamb into the grocery stores up there and they eat a lot of shoulder. Oh, yeah. Um, us, us ate a lot of loins. And so it was a yeah. good compliment. Um, and so it's, it's not that you can't find markets for everything in the U S I think it's just important to be open to servicing all, you know, the, I think one of the secret values to the Australian lamb is their access for, um, I don't know what you would call them, non-Americanized cuts of meat into right. China. You know, so the belly meats and some of the, the values that they can capture for the whole carcass um, can be higher in, in, in their market because of their um, infrastructure that allows them to get to some of these places that we just don't have the volume really to get into. Do you think now, uh, m maybe my understanding is incorrect, but, but I understand that like in the UK, um, there's a, kind of an intermediate class between lamb and mutton that there's there's yearlings that are sold as hoggets um is that yeah i don't yeah i don't okay. know i yeah i don't know uh i know in the u.s so a lamb is um a lamb is defined by anything under physiologically uh, as determined by the right. spool joint um some plants in the u.s um, and a lot y'all most of your major plants will also right. check teeth but they won't yearling discount producers for sheep that have clean spool joints and yearling teeth and popping yeah. yearling teeth and i think the u.s is the only country that uses spool joints of the developed countries and i think everywhere else uses the dentition um you can make an argument yeah. for both i i think um, we could probably spend um six hours and three bottles of whiskey <laughs> trying to figure it out and um will leave all none the wiser but um, at the end of the day the spool joint is basically the joint ossifies as it ages and it ossifies right about a year old um, yearling teeth erupt at about a year old um, there is variation depending on genetics and yeah. nutrition and so many yeah. different things as to how that happens i've had um i've had lambs that we've lambed out on our own ranch in October, go to town in June and break spool and not break school joints and be classified yearlings. I've also had uh, lambs that we bought and fed and carried over for 15 months and they right. don't break them. So, you know, it, it's and then at the same time, I've had yearling teeth right. do the same, right? Where, you know, so it's really no exact science unless we were going to 
EID and write down birth dates for every single individual animal and trace it, which is a, you'd have to create an entirely new bureaucracy <laughs> to do that. Um, you know, yeah. really what we got works yeah. and it works good. Yeah. So anyway, I was answering a question totally. I can't believe I went on that tangent. So in the U.S., we have a lamb, which is by that definition, lengthy definition that I get, just gave. And then everything above a lamb would be considered right. sheep. And so within that, you can market sheep meat, how whatever makes sense. So you can call it mutton, or you can call it yearling, or you can call it hogget, or you can call it all, a couple different things. You just can't call it lamb. Right. So in right. the regulations, it prevents you from calling it a certain thing. It doesn't prevent you from calling it other. Right. Things. Right. So that's a good point. That's why you'll, you'll see somebody say, I got organic something or another, or I have organically handled something or another. Organically handled is totally fine to say about whatever you can't want. Say organic. You can't call it organic yep. unless it's unless you're certified. You know, so it's kind of in that. Yeah. It's in that region. So, so we, just to to follow on that question a little bit um, on mutton, when we were doing direct marketing, I got tired of taking smooth use to the sale and barely paying my transportation there and back. So I took a load um, to be processed and had it cut into three by three inch bone in chunks. And we were going to sell pet food. It was going to be dog food. And I had a customer at the farmer's market um, come up to me and say, boy, that pet food that you sold me made great curry. It was outstanding. <laughs> and so yeah. we marked it up about another 50% and started selling it as mutton stew meat and, and we couldn't yeah. keep it in stock. And then we started doing sausage and, and other things. But, yeah. but again, I think it, it gets to knowing kind of the quality and, and profile of your product too. Right. Yeah, I think so much of that when you get into it is knowing what you're doing. So you're making stew meat. You don't want too much fat because you'll make too much grease, but then you also want to make sure you're fat enough that they're not emaciated or too lean. So yep. yeah, it's just about knowing your market and growing it to it. And, and uh, yeah, yep. Yep. That's, that's cool. That's a good story. All right. One last really important question for you. And, and this is actually my own question. I didn't get this from any listener. But I noted that uh, pitchers and catchers have reported to spring training. And um, I want to know which baseball league is better, in your opinion, and why is it the National League? <laughs> well, it's the American <laughs> League. Because the Oakland A's are the best team ever to grace the field of baseball. Was baseball better when the, when the caps were made out of wool? So the, yeah, definitely there. It was good then. So I became a baseball fan. My grandpa was a season ticket holder for the A's and I became a baseball fan when he, I was hooked when he took me to the game that Ricky Henderson broke the oh, base yeah. record and he stole the base. I actually got a poster of it on my wall out of the picture, but he stole the base and he picked it up off of the ground and held it in the air. And my like seven-year-old mind was blown. <laughs> I didn't know that the bases were removable. <laughs> that was one of the coolest things ever. But no, I, I love my Oakland A's and, and uh, green collar baseball. I love the, they're always, they're always just young, hungry yep. guys that are really trying to, to make it. And I love the philosophy. I hate it because when we do get a good team put together, I just 
Billy Bean can't not <laughs> trade guys away. When, I'm still mad at the sex of this trade, but um, the, the, yeah, it's fun to watch. And yeah, I always, I spent a lot of time talking to grandpa about the A's. They're, they're a fun team. I, uh, and great memories. I got to see when I, I went to auction school in Kansas City when I was 15. So this is kind of ancient history. Um, but we went and saw the Royals and the A's play. And I got to see Ricky Henderson steal second and third on consecutive pitches. But the thing I remember <laughs> most was watching George Brett warm up and throwing the ball from third base to first base, flat footed, like he wasn't even trying, just all wrist. It was just amazing. Yeah. Amazing, amazing. So baseball, yeah, baseball's a good a good thing. It is, it is. It's nice to kind of be getting sports yep, back. It so. is. It is. Yeah. I didn't I didn't watch hardly any football this year and I finally started watching it right at the end. And I watched like the championship NCAA championship game and watched a little bit of the playoffs. And that was all the football I watched all year. I you know, I've gotten normally where I just I almost prefer baseball on the radio to just about any other sport because I can do other things. Yeah. There's something special about baseball on the radio. Yeah. I can't I can't listen to any other sport on the radio. No. I can listen to baseball all day long, but any other sport I can't. I gotta I like watching if I watch it. But then with kids, you know, I don't I don't have much TV time anymore. That's us so. too. That's too. Yeah. I will say just to tie this back to Lamb before we wrap up, um a couple of years ago, Superior was doing some pretty neat lamb products with the Giants that uh yeah. I would seek out if I ever got to go to to the ballpark, and there was some good, some really good sausage and a good lamb burger that they had at the ballpark. Yeah, they've done some good stuff with those lamb sausages and things. It's that's a that that's a fascinating discussion about just the science of of um, like pre season pre process like pre made food like the yeah. sausage or pre season legs and the sourcing of all of those ingredients and keeping them fresh and having them made and done at the right time. And with lamb, it's a, it's a large enough commodity that it makes sense to do, but it's also a small enough commodity where it's hard to get the volume for a, you know, if you're a plant that makes custom sausage for large producers, you want 10 truckloads yeah. of meat and lamb can give right. you four, you know, so it's too big for most and too small for That's others. Right. And That's right. And then sourcing all the ingredients is, I guess, I, I never knew this, but I, and I might be wrong, but I was told one time that rosemary is one of the hardest seasons, seasonings to have, to like keep fresh huh. and get where it's within its like yeah. freshness um, for those prepackaged type meals. It's really a, it's a difficult spice, which I find hilarious because rosemary is basically <laughs> a weed. In my house, where I'm at. Us too. So. Us too. You know, yeah. I, that also gets back to the kind of the conversation we had last week about about direct marketing and, and custom processing too. I think, you know, there's a huge market direct market-wise for ground product, ground lamb, sausage, all those things. But that's so difficult to do on a small scale for a processor because it's so labor and equipment intensive. I just you can't hardly make it work. And I think that's a, that's one of those disconnects that's really hard to solve. Yeah, it is. And I mean, and that's, that's always a, that's always a difficult conundrum and that's the nature of business right. in general. I think when you're small and trying to grow, you have to economically scale right. things. And 
it doesn't always work well. And, you know, you can't get mad. Like for me, I, you know, with, with, uh, um, the, like the fab limitations, I can't, you can't get mad at spirit uh, no, for uh-uh. that. It makes perfect sense. They need to do it because it just, it, you know, you're, you, you can't be efficient and what they would have to charge to do it. You wouldn't be able to sell it for no kind of thing. No, you know, exactly. it's like, that's it. And at the same time, you as a small producer, like, you know, if that's going to be your business model, you have to get creative and have your business right. model work. And so you can't, <clears throat> right. you, you know, there's two ends of that and you can't, um, I don't know, it gets back to, you can't blame people. You got to just find a solution. And, um, cause yeah, it's, I don't know. And, well, that's, and I, that's the fun part of business is you get to be creative. It is, it is. And I think yet, you know, to some extent, I think we have been barking up the wrong tree on some of these questions about processing capacity that it's, I think we have a tendency to go to the same person and complain about the same thing when you really yeah. got to look at a lot more things and coming up with new infrastructure and new players. I mean, it's, I think it's that, that classic, you know, you, you uh, give a mouse a cookie, ask for a glass of milk kind of thing where, right. You know, right. You keep, you keep, you keep going to the same person that keeps bailing you out every time. Well, And I think we're, we're trying to solve a new problem on a, a system that wasn't with the old created yeah. to solve that. So, yeah. Yeah. We got to get creative, got to come up with some new things and, and there's, there's opportunity yeah. out there. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you can look at, I think you can look at the wool industry and, and it's the same exact situation. I agree. Right? Basically all of the scouring goes through yep. two places, right? You know, it's just, but then with that, there's now a, a there's a growing demand for a mid-sized scouring facility. Yep. Or, you know, and their small size is popping up, but there's no midsize. Yep. So if you have a midsize lot, you're kind of in this yep. limbo area and you have to figure out how to navigate it. And, but that's growing. And if the demand grows enough, yeah. something will happen and there'll be opportunity for somebody to, to, you know, make millions, yeah. fill in one of those voids if they can figure yeah. out the solution. And that, that's the history of America is figuring yep. out those problems. Yep. So that's right. I got all the confidence. In I do it. too. I do too. Yeah. Well, thanks for putting up with the scatter, scatterbrain, scattershot approach today. But that was fun to to just throw stuff at you. So thanks for being a good sport. Yeah. No, I wish we had time for more questions. That, that was well, a good maybe one. maybe ever so often we ought to just ask people, ask people that and spring it on one another. You know, you think that'd be fun. Indeed, that was a good one. <laughs> I like it. Well, this is Dan Macon up here in Auburn, California, um, with Sheep Stuff You Should Know and. As always, my uh, partner in all this fun is Ryan Mahoney down in Rio Vista. And uh, we'll see you on the radio next time, huh? Sounds good. See you next week, Dan. All right. Have a good one. Thanks, Ryan.